Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But first, our lead story. Steve Lawrence was a rich kid. He lived in the same resort community as his father. But then an arsonist started terrorizing the neighborhood. And before it was over, Steve's dad was dead. Guess who did it? Hello. And welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part one of the story of Stephen Lawrence. This is a call from... Steve. This call is from a correctional facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. My name is Stephen Lawrence, uh, and I was convicted of first-degree murder and uh, doing a life sentence without parole. And I've been in now for 31 years, going on 32 years. Speaking with men and women who are incarcerated, as you'll know by now if you're a regular listener, comes with its challenges. However, in Stephen's case, it's even more so. As he says that the phones in his prison are closely guarded and controlled. However, not by the prison or the prison guards, but by the gangs that operate with inside it. It took some time to finally get on the phone, and when we did, he didn't have long to speak. So I've been waiting uh, more than a half hour, and I, this, I won't be able to get on again. I'm going to make arrangements, if, if you can do it. Yep. Uh, I, can, I can get on a, a, a phone where nobody's out, probably between 5.15 and 5.30 pretty much any day. Yeah, so that's like 7.30 in the morning for me, for the, so that's perfectly fine, mate. We can do that for sure. Wonderful. Um, so I will get, get with the appropriate people tomorrow and make that arrangement. Eventually, Stephen was able to speak to the right people that he needed to to make arrangements to be able to use a phone when others were in their cells. But he would be limited to just two calls each day that we spoke. Nonetheless, as always, we overcome these issues so that we can tell these stories. And this is Stephen's. In the early hours of February 20, 1992, a fire started in a home in a wealthy lakeside community of Gun Lake, Michigan. 
It was the home of 74-year-old multimillionaire and grocery store tycoon Willard Lawrence. On one night alone, February 20th of this year, four properties were set ablaze, including the home of multimillionaire Willard Lawrence. 74-year-old Lawrence had spent his entire career in the grocery store business, but life came to an abrupt end when he was killed in the tragic fire that night at his Elmwood Beach home, a fire set by an arsonist. Later that same year, Stephen, his son, would be arrested, tried and convicted for the murder of his father. It's a crime he's always maintained he's innocent of. And not only that, he has a strong suspicion that his own brother made him the fall guy for this crime. But more on that shortly. Tell me about where you, uh, where you grew up. Well, I grew up in uh, Hastings, Michigan, and um, a small town, you know, uh, between Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo, basically. But uh, I was very, very fortunate, a very, had a very good life, great family, and, and uh, great mom and dad. And... Uh, Absolutely, you know, no problems. And, you know, we spent a lot of our time at uh, on a cottage at Gun Lake where we ended up moving. And, you know, it was it was a wonderful childhood and, and growing up all the way through. There's nothing negative about it. And uh, we were in, the, our family was in the food business and in the supermarket business. And it was... That was really neat too. Is uh, especially I was the youngest of the family, and and my father was very successful at that point. And uh, when I was coming around, and he was the president of the company, and I learned a lot of things when I was young. I'd you know go to work with him, and I'd be stocking bread shells and stuff like that, and just following him around and, and learning things because I stayed in the food business my whole life because that's what I knew and that's what I loved. And uh, you know that was that was really rewarding. And matter of fact, when you spoke to me about um, you know going back in you know the time, and it, it's painful because losing and going and what I got through. But even simple things like I remember one time when my dad brought home uh, at the store they had a promo on Starkist tuna. And they had all the cans of Star Kiss tuna in this little blue boat with a red paddle. And once that, that uh, promotion was over, all of a sudden, Dad pulls up and he's got that in his trunk. And young kid, boy, put that right in the lake without paddling around and just things like that. It was a really wonderful life. What about school? Yeah. What was school like for you? Um, school was kind of so-so uh, as far as the school. I don't know if they're going to make me go in here or not. They just said everybody's got to go in. So, okay. Um, at, at any rate, uh, grade school stuff was all right. It was just probably to look at it, you know, going back in school, I... I never really applied myself really, really hard. And there was, you know, like typical even what goes on now, bullying and things like that. And I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I would, especially once I got into high school. So Steve says that school all in all was fine. 
He became involved with the YMCA and did the community work which he really enjoyed. However, he was always destined to go into the family business of groceries and once he left school, that's exactly where he went. But it was never going to be a case of a nice comfy desk job straight to the top. His dad would put him to work on the shop floor, learning the business from the ground up. And it was very, very interesting to me to look at now. Is I went through my dad, you know, I said, like, with stocking bread shells, stuff like that, in the supermarket. You know, I was a grocery bagger. I worked in produce. He had me working all through the stores, learning everything. And as I got older and I was moving up and, you know, and to low management positions. But I always figured, you know, he's the owner and, and president of this company. I should be up higher. And I couldn't understand that, why he never would do that. And uh, But the thing is, as I got older, I realized that what he was doing is he wanted me to be trained, to know how to do everything. So when I did get in that position, I had been there and I had done it. And that way, uh, you know, you've had got experience. And that really paid off because later on in life, when I, I left uh, our company, and it, I left the company because of my brother Don, uh, I went to work for uh, Spartan Stores, a big warehouse, and like that. And the thing is, when I went in to, at that point, Spartan Stores had 500 stores, and, you know, in a company car, and I was out and... And when I went into these stores, I had done a lot of this stuff and learned a lot from my dad. And that opened up doors. My dad did, just walking in with my name, but then I had to prove myself. So it, it was good, you know, and I was, uh, it was happy. And one of the things, you know, I, I know like with my brothers and sisters like that, especially because coming from a wealthy family and, and with my dad being president, I didn't ever have the aspirations to be a president or a CEO or anything like that. I wanted to be, you know, to the fact where have a family. I wanted to be a family man, but I wanted to make sure 100% I could provide for them and provide for them very well. But I didn't want to be gone all the time, so like that. And throughout my life, until I was wrongly arrested and incarcerated, I didn't go out. I wasn't out in bars, and I wasn't doing this and that. When I got done with work, I was home with my family, whether it was hiking, whether it was boating or snowmobiling or jet skiing. I wanted to do things with the family. And that also meant a heck of a lot to my mom and dad, too, because they knew, you know, a very good family man. Tell me about your siblings. Well, well, my siblings are quite a bit older. I've got two sisters, and when I was growing up, they were gone, married. Um, two brothers, they were there very briefly, basically, when I was young, so like that. They were in high school and went to college because I was, uh, you know, I was, I guess, a mistake as a family and stuff like that. And uh, so they were kind of gone. And so... Uh, yeah, they they really were around, weren't very close. Um, you know, say uh, my sister Joanne lived in uh, Washington D.C. and and uh, my other sister didn't live real close around Battle Creek, stuff like that. But um, 
you know, the siblings just weren't around. It was just basically me. So you were essentially an only child, obviously, not not being an only child, but well, you grew up that way. Yes, and, and that also, as time went by, too, caused problems, too, because there was a lot of jealousy because my family, my dad, was very successful when I was coming around, and, you know, I, I was... I was spoiled, in, to a sense, you know, more than they were, and I had a lot more time to spend with him, too, because when you're working your way up, uh, you're putting a lot of time in. And he, uh, during when I was growing up like that, being able to be around a lot more and like that. And, and uh, another thing that was a really good memory was, as I was thinking about, you know, the childhood, what you were talking about is when... And it happened more than one time, too. My dad pulled in from work. We had a group of guys on the basketball court playing basketball, and my dad got out, and he went to the roughly the three-point line and started throwing swishes and said, Hot shot, Lawrence. And it was a big smile, and, and still it's, it's a wonderful memory, too. Although the youngest of five kids, Steve says due to the age difference between him and his siblings, life was almost like growing up as an only child as most of his siblings had already left the home, and the two of his brothers who were still there were so much older that they never really had much to do with him. Um, when I was young, pre-teen, of course, Dick and Dom were still there, and they were typical older brothers and torment, torment their little brother. Mm. And I've only seen my sister Joanne maybe every year or two. Sister Judy, I'd see her every month or so on Sunday dinner. Same with Don. At that time, uh, Richard lived in Ohio, so didn't see much of him. And then in the real late 70s or close to the 80s, my dad bought both Richard and Don cottages on Gun Lake. Don really used it. Dick uh, was out there, I guess, pretty much every weekend, but that's when Candy and I lived in Marshall. And to give you an idea on the distance with the siblings, stuff like that, when you kind of did say only child, is on uh, March 22, 1983, uh, our third child uh, died after birth a couple days afterwards. name was Ricky. And I remember in the trial when they asked my brother Dick, uh, uh, the, the attorney asked Dick that if he went to Ricky's funeral, my brother's answer in court was, I didn't even know there was a funeral. That's kind of how it was. Not overly close. No. Yeah, Definitely right. not. And it's because I was probably younger, stuff like that. Dick and Dom were real close, but I was so much younger. You mentioned there was a bit of jealousy with the other siblings. How does how did that sort of show itself? Well, I guess it just, uh, with them being gone and everything, and like I was sharing with you, you know, my family was, they were multimillionaires, and we did a lot more things, you know, and when, you know, none of my brothers or sisters or anything like that, my dad and I, I mean, mom's like that, you know, we went snowmobiling, we went fishing, it was more of a family life, and that's something that they never really had, and it wasn't that he probably didn't want to, he just didn't have the time because he was, you know, working so much to, uh, to grow. Yeah. And there was jealousy, but where the jealousy really hit Jack was after we got married and we had boys, and that was the only Lawrence boys in the family, and it really changed things then. Right, because of the family name situation? 
Oh, yeah. And they just adored our two sons, absolutely. Because they would essentially continue on the family name. Mm-hmm, exactly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Did you and your siblings get some form of money from your father as in like an allowance or, you know, did you have shares in the company? Were you getting any sort of residual income from that side of things? Yes. Um, No allowance or anything like that. I mean, when I was a young kid, we would get an allowance, but we had company shares. Yes, we had that. And he used to uh, give money away uh, to all of us. And they always used to, my brother listen, said they always used to give it to me and then they'd get it too, but they, you know, and he was a big help. When we did build our house, stuff like that, our house was over what we could afford, but my dad helped us out Yep. like that when we built it. And yeah, so he was, he was always there for us. You weren't financially struggling. You, you were earning good money yourself. Plus your father was, as you said, a generous man and would always help you where you needed it. Oh, yes. Um, the house we had was valued uh, $1.5 million, roughly right around there, maybe $1.7. And, uh, no, we were, not, we were not hurting at all. Yeah. And one of the things that was, was really it was good, too, is even though my mom and dad could do things for us because they had the money, they we had to earn it ourselves, and he wanted the the value of the dollar. And <clears throat> growing up, you know, I had lawn mowing, I shoveled snow, paper routes, like that. And I remember, you know, those were the things I had to do. And if I wanted to buy, there was a Schwinn bicycle I wanted to buy, buy, but I had to earn that money and to go and buy it. 
and uh, and I did. And the thing is, it also taught me to respect, you know, and, and take care of that bike because I paid my money for it and, and worked at it, yeah. you know, really, really hard. During the course of our conversation, Steve would message me to say that it has continued to spark memories from his childhood. Happy ones that are a little bit painful to relive due to where he's ended up in life, but happy nonetheless. These memories have been mainly centred around, of course, his father and the relationship which they shared. Stephen says it was a great one. He loved and respected his father, and he said his father was always supportive and wanted to do things to help his kids. Steve remembers one particular gesture from his father that he remembers fondly. When I bought my first bike, I had to earn it. And then as I'm growing up and I'm in high school, I got my first used car. After first used car and stuff like that, and saying I'm, now I'm working, and I bought my first, ordered a brand new uh, car, you know, and, and ordered it and got everything I want on it bought a jet boat, had a jet boat, you know, because we lived on the lake, bought snowmobiles. The point is, it's all these different things, and, you know, I was doing fine, and, and I had all the toys and a nice place to live and everything. I mean, this was after I moved out, wasn't married yet. But the thing is, you know, and my dad was, you know, being wealthy and knowing a lot of people. Well, on our wedding day, after Candy and I were married, my dad called uh, Saladin to the parking lot at the reception. He said, I want to talk to you two. And we were out there, Jack, and he handed Candy and I a bank passbook. And it was so cool and I, that everything that I bought from that bicycle to my first used car, my first new car, the jet boat that I bought, everything I bought, he put that amount of money into a bank account for me. But he wanted me to be out there working and earning it, you know, myself. But he put that and he just handed it to us and he says, here, it's to help you kids get started. Yeah, well, that's and, a very, very wonderful thing to do. Oh, it was, it was amazing. And quite frankly, you know, in, until this crap happened here, I was starting to do that with my sons. As a matter of fact, my oldest son, one of the things he bought was a Schwinn mountain bike and did the same thing with him after he earned it and bought it. I got a bank account and put that money in in the bank for him. The prosecution would later paint Steve and his father's relationship to be one that was strained and that Steve's father was sick of having to bail out his youngest son of the trouble he was always in. Supposedly, at one point, talking about removing Steve from his will. Allegations that we will, of course, discuss with Steve later on. Tell me about your your wife and how you guys met. In 1972, uh, we moved out there. My mom and dad built a home, a large home on the lake, and you know my brothers and sisters went there. I was the only one that had a bedroom in there in 1972. And uh, her and her family had a house. They lived there and farther up the point. And uh, I was out on a paddle boat one time, met her, and and. You know, she was basically, uh, from that time on, childhood sweetheart, and and eventually we got married. So how old were you when you first met her? Probably 15, 16, right around there. (laughs) 
His wife Candy would in fact herself end up in court charged in connection with this crime. But we will explore that further soon. So life for Steve, he says, was great. They were happy. He was working hard and had a loving family, and especially with his father. So good, in fact, that Steve and his family would make the move to Gun Lake, where his father lived. Gun Lake is in between Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo, off from US 131. It's a large lake with 104 miles of shoreline and a very affluent area. And one of the highest points in Lower Michigan, beautiful homes, stunning scenery, with most of it comprising of state recreational areas, it's quite the playground of water sports for locals and visitors alike. A great place for a young family to move to. And in fact, Steve and his family wouldn't just move to the same area that his father lived, but in fact would move right next door to his dad's home. So you, you and your wife and your family, you moved in next door to your father. When, when did that all sort of happen? We were married in, on August 12, 1978. And after that, we lived in Marshall at that time. And then um, I believe it was in around 19, 1984, we started, we were still living in Marshall. And I knew I was leaving our company, and we I would look for uh, a cottage or a home on Gun Lake uh, in 1984. And then, and I believe it was, this is the best of my memory, it's been a while, the summer of 1985, I remember, I remember the phone call. My dad called and said the Porter Cottage, which was right next door, when I say right next door, 20 feet from his uh, mom's house, and said, it's up for sale, would you like it? And uh, there was no hesitation, there was no nothing, it was just yes. And uh, it, we were excited about that, because, I mean, we got along so well. And after we got our house there, uh, right on Gun Lake, right next to them, um, and we had our plans all set for the build the home on, on the property, my dad at that time was pretty much retired, and he became my general contractor to watch the contractor. So when I was working so like that, he was over there making sure everything was done right and everything, and he was in his glory doing that. And I just loved the fact that he was there keeping an eye on things and knew what he was doing, too, because they had built so many supermarkets and everything, so he was used to construction. So, But that was great, you know what I'm saying? That was in 1985. So, and I mean, yeah, as you said, you must have had a close relationship to want to move in right next door to your to your father. Exactly. Well, we we say we never had a problem. We uh, always gave us our space, but and it was great for the kids. But like I said to you a few minutes ago, it, he was the most wonderful sounding board too. Beyond being a dad, and we were very close as a family because that family meant the most to me more than, than business because I, I loved family. And, oh well, hell, when I went to their house, stuff like that, you boys find me in the kitchen cooking or out at the grill with my dad cooking, like that, that was important. But having him next door for that sounding board and, and to guide me right in the food business and, and try to make all the right moves and everything. And it definitely uh, opened up doors and, and helped me. Steve's mother would pass away from ALS in April of 1991. Steve says the fact that they lived next door to his father was even more of a blessing, as his father would never remarry. And Steve, his wife, Candy and the kids were always just next door so that his father was never lonely. And and that was just 
he never did, but it was a, that was a godsend for us to be there because um, I was usually on the road, Jack, so I kept going to different supermarkets and business meetings and things like that, and I always kept a cooler in my trunk, and I'd find, you know, some, some great steaks or some, uh, you know, where they had things on sale, and I, even back then, this was kind of before they had cell phones, I had a cell phone in my car and a fax machine and stuff, and you know, I pick up the phone and say, hey, I just grabbed some steaks, or I just grabbed, they got a deal on chickens like that, you want to come over for dinner, and we did that so much, you know, he beat with us all the time, and I was always there, and to help with whatever he needed, so it was, that was a blessing. As Steve has said, he would leave school to go into the family food business. However, he says due to his poor relationship with his brother Don, it wouldn't be long before he left the family business to work elsewhere. I had a, a, a great secondary education because I loved the food business. I was born and raised in the food business, wanted to stay in it. And I always planned on staying in our family business. And the only reason I left our supermarket business was because of my brother Don. But I had the best teacher there was, and, and that was my dad. Because when I was you know, working at Spartan stores, and I ended up leaving there because of my brother Don, but when I was there and then at Cisco and all the different times, it was my father was extremely good and well-respected in the food industry. And he was uh, uh, a member of Nargis, which was the National Association of Retail Grocers and Supermarkets, which, which was a top uh, convention or, or group, you know, that uh, think group. And whenever I would have questions or I would see different things in the food industry, I'd, you know, go over and sit with him and bounce things off. And it was a world of knowledge, you know, uh, coming right from him because he had done it. And, and I just, I cherished that so much. So you, you sort of mentioned um, Don a few times in regards to you leaving, first of all, your family's business and then this second place. So, so what was the issues with mm-hmm. Don? Well, when... When I was, of course, young, and I think I told you, you know, I used to have the opportunity every once in a while to travel around with my dad to go to our different stores in different cities and stuff like that. And he was very, very personable. <clears throat> and I was young, but, I, I, and, but I'd sit back and, and watch him or stand back and watch him, how he would handle things. And when we'd go into a store, I don't care what store it was and what city, he knew everybody's name. He would. I'd watch him, whether it be a produce counter or a meat counter, something like that. He'd be going through, kind of doing an inspection, and he might see something that shouldn't have been in that case. That you know, it shouldn't be for sale. It should have been taken out or pulled and everything. And the meat manager, or the produce manager, or store manager would be right there, and he would never say anything to him. They all knew he saw it, but he would compliment on everything that looked really great, and. My brother Don, when he started taking over, he would go in there and just, if he saw something like that, chew them out, uh, maybe tell them they would keep doing that crap, fire them. He had a totally different way of, of management, which I absolutely hated. And we bumped heads a whole bunch when I was working, you know, because he was uh, a vice president at that time and, and uh, just didn't like his management style whatsoever and how he, he did things. So... And then when I left the company and went with Spartan Stores, he did some things at Spartan and took millions and millions of dollars of business from him, and then that caused me a bunch of problems there. So 
and it, there was no way I was getting promotions or doing anything because of what he did there. It, was, it wasn't a direct thing, but an indirect thing, but, so that's when I left and went to uh, Cisco. So, so your brother Don took over from your dad. Yeah. Was it because he was older that he got that opportunity? Yeah, he he was yeah definitely older. Uh, he went to Michigan State University and majored in food marketing. And yes, but it was the age thing and staying in the business. My brother Dick didn't want to stay there, but both you know he loved the food business, I guess, whatever. But I'll tell you what, after my father passed away, he got out of there as quick as he could. So it's fair to say there was a fair bit of animosity between you and your older brothers. There wasn't wasn't much uh, much friendship there. Well, especially with Don. Now, yeah. Dick, we were a little bit better, Richard, but yeah, Don and I never saw eye to eye at all. Quite frankly, he's the whole reason I'm in here. You have one minute remaining. And that's all we've got time for. But coming up, a series of suspicious fires begin to be lit at homes around the Gun Lake area. Fires that would later be blamed on Steve. However, he wasn't the only suspect. Originally, the police were looking at someone else. So, and if you look at the police reports, it was always one name, all, always at the top. Yeah. And that was a real close friend of my brother, Don's. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. 